bunch of y'all. Uh, I needed that on Wednesday night, amen? <laughs> We're going to mess around that church right here on Wednesday. I'm glad, for, glad of it. Thankful for it. Thank you, brother, for that song. Bless my heart. Take your Bibles tonight. Turn with me, please, back to Hebrews chapter number 6. And uh, we're going to try and continue where we left off last week. If you were with us last Wednesday night, you'll remember that I told you that in Hebrews chapter 6, there's actually a chapter division after verse number 12. So really what we have here are two sections, verses 1 through 12 and then verses 13 through 20. It is my plan and purpose tonight by the power of the Holy Spirit to finish all of that. We're going to try to do that. Uh, Lord willing, if, if we don't get to the second section, then we'll come back next week and finish up again. But we're going to try to do that tonight. Now, we said last time that we were together in this first passage, these verses 1 through 12, that really what that is is just a continuation of the thought that the writer was giving us in, in the fifth chapter. And really what he's calling us to is spiritual maturity. So, uh, chapter 5 and at least the first 12 verses of chapter 6 is a call by God to the believer to come to the place of being spiritual mature. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but we need to realize and understand God has saved us for the purpose of becoming like Jesus. Can you say amen? Of maturing in our faith. And we've said time and again as we study through the book of Hebrews, what that means is less of us and more of Jesus. We must decrease. So that he might increase. And that's really the, uh, the foundation of what the writer's giving us here in chapters 5 and the first part of chapter 6. Now, this call to spiritual maturity that he, he gives us right here in these first 12 verses, I want us to really look at four main points concerning that. The first one we looked at last week. And we said this call is a call to spiritual progress. It's a call for us to progress in our faith. We saw that in verses 1 through 3. And really what the writer is teaching there is that as believers, we are to progress, we are to grow in our relationship and fellowship with God vertically. If you believe that, say amen. How do you know when we are born again into the family of God, we become as newborn babes in Christ. But it's from that point that we are to grow to become what God ultimately wants us to be. So the first step in that is growing in our relationship with Him, that vertical relationship. Now let me ask you something. How do we do that? How do we grow in our relationship and in our fellowship um, to God the Father, to God Himself? Well, uh, there's several ways that we do that. Uh, one way that we can certainly do it and, and is, is through the privilege of prayer. Now I want to tell you something. If you as a believer do not practice the great privilege of prayer, you're never going to grow in your faith. It's not going to happen. You're not going to grow in your relationship to uh, the Lord, with the Lord. It's just not going, to, not going to happen for any of us. How many of you have ever heard um, that if you want any relationship to be fruitful, if you want any relationship to grow and be what, what you need it to be and what you want it to be, it takes communication. I, I've, I've counseled with several um, uh, husbands and wives, married couples, and, and, and that's something that we talk about all the time. Look, you have to communicate with one another if you really want to grow in your relationship. I think it was uh, 
Um, James Dobson who said, if you don't communicate, you'll surely disintegrate. And he's right. That's exactly right. And that's not only true between the relationship between a husband and a wife, but that's certainly true between our relationship to God himself. We must communicate. And we get to, we don't have to, but we get to um, practice the privilege of prayer and talk to God about whatever's going on in our life. Now, I want you to think about what a privilege that is and how powerful that is. That every day, any time I choose, I can speak to the God who spoke and the blue skies came, came into being. You can too if you're a child of God. You have the privilege of prayer. But it's up to us to put that privilege into practice daily. And as we do so, we can and will certainly grow in our relationship and fellowship to the Lord, with the Lord. Now, not only is it through prayer, but it's also through the study of the Word of God. Why? Because what we have in the Word of God is a love letter to us. It's someone who loves us and whom we love has sent us a letter that we need to be reading. Can you say amen? That, that, that's uh, something that we all must do if we're going to grow in our relationship and our fellowship with the Lord as we progress in our faith. Listen, folks, it takes time. We must take time to spend time in the Word of God. I don't know about you. I, I don't think anybody can say that they read the Word of God enough. I can always grow in that. I can always, I always need to take more time than I do to spend time in the precious, powerful Word of God. And what's amazing to me, when I do take time to get in the Word of God and practice that daily quiet time, then I want to kick myself for not doing it sooner. Because what will happen? God begins speaking to me on an individual basis, and His Word will literally, listen to me, believer, His Word will literally burst a flame in your hand when you pray over it and you ask God to speak to you, when you listen, take time to spend time in that precious word. Uh, it's his love letter to us. I remember when me and my wife uh, first started dating. That happened when she was 14 and I was 16. She was a ninth grader, a freshman in high school, and I was 11th grader. We've been together now for over 30 years. And I'm, uh, I'm so thankful uh, for the marriage, for the relationship I have with my wife. She truly is uh, my greatest gift and my best friend. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and I'm so thankful for her. But I can remember when we first started dating, she, and she still does this today, she would always do special things for me, all right? I'd go out to my truck in the evening at school, and when I would get in, uh, there'd be a card there. And a lot of times what she would do was put on some bright red lipstick, all right? And then she would kiss that letter or kiss that card. And then she might even take um, her favorite perfume that she wore all the time. She would wear uh, sunflowers. That was the name of the perfume. I still remember it today, brothers and sisters. I love the smell of sunflowers. And, um, and she would take that perfume and just spritz a little of it on that letter. And either slide it in my locker or she would put it in my truck. And when I opened up that locker, opened up that truck, and I smelled sunflowers... I knew I had something I had to read. Why? Because somebody who cared about me has written me a letter, and I care about them. So praise God I'm going to read it. Amen? Now, she's, again, she still does this. A lot of times I'll, uh, she'll fix my lunch before I go to work. Man, I'll get to work, and there'll be something wrote on a napkin or wrote on a paper towel or a letter still put in there. 
And I still like reading it. Why? Because someone who loved me wrote that letter. And I love them. The same is true with the Word of God. Listen, someone who loves us with an unconditional, everlasting love. Someone who showed us grace and mercy in spite of our shortcomings. Listen, someone who loves us has written us a letter. And if we love Him, why don't we read it? Why don't we take time to spend time in the Word of God? You won't regret it. We grow in our relationship and fellowship with God. We progress in our faith first and foremost because of that vertical relationship with the Lord. But not only does he talk about the vertical relationship with the Lord, he also talks about the horizontal relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. All of that happens in these first three verses. Now listen to me. If you want to grow horizontally with your brothers and sisters in Christ, the best way to do that is be in service with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the best way. I'm talking about get plugged in and get active in serving the Lord together. And I can promise you the bonds between your brothers and sisters will grow stronger. There's no doubt about that. And that is such a special such a powerful thing. I, I told, talked to you a little bit about it Sunday morning, how that last week we had such a good time over at camp. Now, let me tell you why we had a good time at camp. First and foremost, because we got to serve the Lord. Can you see me? We got to honor and glorify Him. We got to show love to these children that He's blessed us with. And I was so thankful for all of that, no doubt about it. But let me, what's, what's um, as important, maybe even more important for me, is, is serving with the brethren, with my brothers and sisters in Christ. See God use them. And listen, maybe I can encourage them and they certainly encourage me as they allow God to work on them, work in them and work through them to accomplish His good will and purpose. And when that takes place, we grow together. We grow stronger. So if you want to be a part of that, get plugged in. I had a man tell me one time, he used to go to church here. He, he called me up and he said, I ain't coming to church no more. And I said, why is that? He said, I just don't feel like I'm a part. Well, let me tell you what, what was going on. He just came whenever he felt like, you know. If he didn't feel like it, he wouldn't come. And his wife hardly ever darkened the door of the church. He said, my wife just don't feel like she's got any friends. I said, brother, let me tell you something. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, if a man wants friends, he must show himself friendly. How in the world... Can we grow in our relationship and in our fellowship one with another horizontally in the body of Christ if we don't take time to spend time with one another? If we're not in service on a Sunday morning, if we're not in a, 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 a Sunday school class, plugged in with that group of people learning and growing together in our faith, if we're not, listen, serving together in the ministry, if we're not under the preaching and teaching of the Word of God together, how can we ever expect to grow in our relationships with one another? He said, well, I'm going to go somewhere else. And I said, brother, I hope you find what you're looking for. But if you're going to find what you're looking for, you've got to get faithful. You do. If it's here somewhere else, you've got to get faithful. And if you don't get faithful, I don't care where you go, you're never going to feel like you're apart. You've got to get faithful. Meet people where they are. 
extend grace to them that's been extended to you. Can you say amen? That's what we do. What we got to do. So he says in these first three verses, this call to spiritual maturity is a call to a progression. Listen to me now. A spiritual progression as we grow in our relationship and fellowship with God and in our relationship and fellowship with others. Vertically, horizontally. Amen. Now, why do I tell you all that? Because we've got to get this in context tonight. If you're taking notes, write this down. My, my teachers over at the uh, Bible Institute used to say this, and it's always stuck with me. It's so true. Listen to me. Context is always king. Context. If you do not keep the word of God in context, you're going to completely and totally miss the meaning. It must be kept in context. What do I mean? Who is he talking to then? What did it mean then? What does it mean to us now? And when you really want to start getting a hold of what God has for you, then you ask the question, what does it mean to me? Context. Context. The context in which the writer is writing right here in Hebrews chapter 6 is in the context of the body of Christ. Believers. Everybody say believers. believers. Everybody say, listen to me now. Blood bought. Born again. Believers. Alright, so that's the context. Now, the first point I want to make is just what I made. That it's a call to spiritual progress. The second point I want to make to you tonight comes from verses 4 through 6. This call does not and cannot affect our salvation. You hear me? Point number two. The call to progress spiritually does not and cannot affect our salvation. Let's look at verse number four. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Now, I want to make two statements concerning these verses in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6. Statement number one, these verses are probably two of the most debated verses in all the New Testament, in all the Bible. No doubt about it. These verses are debated as much, maybe more, than any other. Statement number two, these verses in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, along with the passage in Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 39, have caused more worry and concern for people, for believers, than just about any other verses. And the reason for the worry and concern is misapplication and misunderstanding. You hear me? A lot of people I know of personally have literally lost sleep at night because of these verses. No doubt about it. Now, 
When it comes to the different understandings and applications of these verses, there are really three that jump out at me, all right, that I've heard, that I know that you have heard when people try to apply or understand what's really being said here. The first one being this. They believe, the people who believe you can lose your salvation, use these verses as the basis of their theological doctrine. Now listen, I got several reasons for that, a whole lot of reasons for that. But tonight, I'm just going to give you three why I think that's wrong. All right? Three reasons why I disagree with that viewpoint. First of all, what do I mean by apostasy? If you say that someone is an apostate, what you're really saying is, they have actually um, renounced or abandoned the faith they had and what they did in the faith. All right? They've abandoned their faith and they're called an apostate. And really what the people who believe you can lose your salvation say is that these verses are saying that if you um, become an apostate, if you renounce your faith, if you abandon your faith, then there's no way that you can be saved, which means literally you've lost your salvation. All right. Now, the first problem I have with that is the word apostasia in the original Greek is not even used in this passage. See, for us to really get down to the bottom of what the word of God is talking about, we got to dig a little deeper. Can you say amen? And, and so right here in, um, in Hebrews chapter six and verse number six, the verb for fall away there is not the Greek word apostasia, but it's the Greek word parapipto. Now, the word parapipto means not to fall away, but to fall alongside. How many of you know there's a lot of difference between falling away and falling alongside? If the writer wanted to say apostasia, he could have said it. He didn't want to say it, so he said parapipto. That's the cool thing about the Greek language. It gave you the ability to actually say what you mean. Amen? You've heard me say before that whenever we're reading the Word of God and you see the word love um, in the Greek language, there's three separate words for the word love. And so it gave you the ability to, talk, to, to, to really say what you meant about the type of love you were actually talking about. The same is true here. Same is true here. If he had wanted to use apostasia, he could have used it, but that is not what he said. Now, the second reason why I do not believe these verses teach that you can lose your salvation is the rest of the New Testament. Let me give you something that Dr. Ronnie Barrefield once told me. I've never forgotten. I love that brother with all my heart. I want to give you a quote that I wrote down a, lot, a long time ago that's always stuck with me. He said, always interpret the obscure by the obvious. I like that. People who believe you can lose your salvation, pick and choose verses from here and there and over there. These obscure verses and then build their theological argument around that. That is a very dangerous thing to do. Because what happens then, you take out of context what is actually being said. See, anybody with even a, a small level of biblical knowledge can take the Word of God, twist it and turn it, and make it sound like whatever they want it to sound like. 
I mean, if you take the words of Jesus, for instance, out of context, when He said, you've got to eat of my body and eat my flesh and drink my blood, if you take that out of context, you can make it sound like Jesus is actually telling you that you need to take part in cannibalism. Do you think that's what He was saying? No, absolutely not. But to take that out of context, you completely misinterpret the passage. And when you misinterpret, misunderstand the passage, then it's misapplied. That's what has happened so much with these verses. We don't, listen, take these obscure verses here, there, and, and over there somewhere, and then build our whole argument on them. What we have to do is take the complete Word of God in context and see where that leads us. So where does the New Testament lead us concerning what saved always saved or losing your salvation? Why do I believe, why do I believe with everything in me that eternal security is a biblical doctrine? Why do I believe that? Because the Baptist faith and message says it. See, we've got a Baptist faith and message. Y'all know that, don't you? The Southern Baptist Convention has a Baptist faith and message that has the tenets of what we believe. It's written out for us. But I'm going to tell you this. I don't believe, I don't believe in the doctrine of eternal security simply because the Baptist faith and message says it. I believe in the doctrine of eternal security because the Word of God teaches it over and over and over and over again. All throughout the, the New Testament. So, if we believe right here in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, if we believe it's actually saying that you can lose your salvation, then it is in complete contradiction to pretty much the rest of the Bible. Let me show you what I mean. I'm going to give you just a few verses. I, I, I could give you. A whole lot tonight. I'm just going to give you some of my favorite ones. Alright? First of all, look in John chapter number 5. Jesus himself speaking here in verse number 24. John 5 verse 24. Watch what this says. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath what? Hath what? Now let me ask you something. When does... Your everlasting life begin. Absolutely. It starts when you are born again into the body of Christ. In that moment, you receive everlasting life. Not some life. Not a lot of life. But every everlasting life. Infinity, eternal life. Now let me ask you, we've answered the question when um, everlasting life begins. And sister, you're right, I'm glad you said that. Because a lot of people think your eternal life starts when you get to heaven. Oh no, no, no. Your eternal life begins the moment you believe. That's what this is teaching. He that hears my word and believeth on him that sent me hath what? When do you get it? When you believe. When you believe by faith, when you trust in the Lord, in that moment, you receive everlasting life. We found out when it begins. Let me ask you this. When does it end? 
hopes, if it ends, then it's not everlasting. Right? So Jesus himself says here, He that believes by faith in me, and him that sent me, he that believes has everlasting life. It starts when you believe, and if it's everlasting, it cannot end. Then he goes on to say, And he shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from what? Isn't that good stuff? Aren't you thankful for the Word of God? He's passed from death to life. Wow. Go from there to John chapter 10. This is really good. John chapter 10, verses 26 through 30. Look what this says. Now this is really going to knock your socks off. This is what he tells us. But you believe not because you are not my sheep as I said unto you. So again, Jesus makes it plain. How do we become one of his sheep? Believe. By placing faith, trust in who he is. Believing in him. Putting faith in him. His finished work. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I, and I give unto them what? There it is again. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So what Jesus is saying is, if you have believed on me and you're one of my sheep, you are in the palm of my hand. And nobody can snatch you out of my hand. That's what he's saying. One of my favorite movies when I was a kid was the movie Bloodsport. Anybody? Frank Dukes. He owned the record, the Guinness Book in the Guinness Book of World Records. He owned the fastest roundhouse kick. I don't know if he still does or not, but for many years he did that. Won the Kumite. You know. It was now that I've, I've watched it again when I got older, it's amazing how things changed. I thought that was the absolute coolest movie I'd ever seen in my life. I tried to watch it about two Saturdays ago, and it's the corniest thing. It's terrible. That's a terrible movie. I am definitely not an actor, but I can beat John Paul Van Damme. That brother, he can't act a lick. I'm telling you. He's terrible. I'm going to tell you something else. He can't kick either. Or punch. You know what I'm saying? You would see in that movie, man, when I was a kid, I thought that was just getting at it, boy. And, but you go back and watch it, and when they throw those punches and kicks, sometimes it's that far from their face. That's not my message. I'm just saying <laughs> In that movie, there was a scene where they were trying to grab the quarter out of the hand. Y'all remember that? And Jean-Claude Van Damme was so fast, not only did he grab the quarter out of the dude's hand, but switched the coin. You remember? Let me tell you something. Not even Jean-Claude Van Damme can snatch you out of the hand of Jesus. No man and pluck you out of his hand. Then he goes a step further. Watch this. You're not just a little bit secure. You're a lot secure. Look at the next verse. Verse 29. My father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. You say, oh, but brother Israel, maybe nobody can pluck us out of the father's hand, but we can pluck ourselves out. How does that work? You're bigger than God? You're stronger than God? See what Jesus is teaching here. Your salvation is not dependent upon you. 
I'm going to say that again because y'all had to miss that. Your salvation is not dependent upon you. It's not. Now, your growth in the faith, a lot of that depends on you. Your service in the faith, a lot of that depends on you. Your progression in the faith, a lot of that depends on you. But when it comes to your salvation, that is not dependent upon you. It's not as though you're somehow holding on to God. Brothers and sisters, listen to me plainly. If I am holding on to God, that is no good because my grip slips regularly. All the time. All the time. My grip slips in traffic. Are you hearing me? If it takes something as small and insignificant as traffic to make me lose my grip, then my salvation ain't much. That is not what Jesus, Jesus is saying. It's not that you're holding on to me. I'm holding on to you. Do you see it? Look at another one. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Let's start in verse 28. Romans 8, 28. Watch this. And we know that all things work together for, good, for the good of them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Somebody will write that down. Somebody will write that down. Somebody will circle it, put a star by it. You're going to need that verse. Because when it says all things, that's exactly what it means. All things we perceive to be good and all things we even perceive to be bad. All things work together for our good and His glory. How can God do that? Because He's God. Because he's sovereign, because of his providence, and because he has a much better vantage point than you do. He's sitting way up here and he sees behind you, he sees in front of you, and he sees you right now. He knows where he's taking you and he can orchestrate by his omnipotence all of the stuff that's going on in your life to bring you exactly where he wants to bring you. That's what that's saying. My Lord, that's good, isn't it? All things, all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord. Wow, I love that. Verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the first one among many brethren. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also called, whom he called, then he also justified, whom he justified, then he also glorified, 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 is in the past tense. He's not saying you will be glorified. He's saying you've already been justified. You've already been glorified. Called, justified, and glorified are all three in the past tense in that verse. Now what does glorified mean? Glorified means one day I'm going to be just like Jesus is in my heavenly home, in my eternal home. Listen, in my glorified body just like He is. That's the culmination of my faith. That's the culmination of my salvation experience. Amen? He speaks as though it's already taken place. He's saying that's already happened. What he's saying is you are so secure in Jesus because you place faith and trust in Him that God already sees you as being glorified. Let's go on. Verse 31. 
What shall then we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also freely give us all things? Verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. He, who is he that condemneth? That is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us? Wow. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Everything you see in verse number 35 is pretty much anything that can happen to you in this world. Circumstances, situations, bad stuff that can, that can take place in your life. He says, can any of that separate you from the love of Jesus? Then he goes on and asks some more questions. Verse 36. As it is written, for thy sake we are all we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But then he answers himself in verse 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Through who? Him that loved us. Go to verse 38. Watch this. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come. So he said the things not only in earth that can happen to you, but all of the powers of the heavens. Powers, principalities, things present right now. What's going to come in the future? He said, I'm persuaded nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God nor any other creature, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe none of that can separate me from Jesus, but I can separate myself from Jesus. Don't forget that part in that verse where it says, nor any other creature. Ain't you a creature? Ain't you in the earth? He's already went through all that. What I'm saying is, nothing can separate you from Christ, not good things, not bad things, not people, not even you. Certainly not Satan. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Principalities and powers have no power over us as believers. Praise the Lord. If the writer in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, is saying you lose your salvation, he's in direct contradiction with the rest of the New Testament. That's just a few folks that I can give you. There's many, many, many more. But... If the writer in Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 6, is saying you can lose your salvation, he's in direct contradiction with himself. Let me tell you why I say that. Let's look at the end of Hebrews 6. Go to Hebrews 6, verse 13. And when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after that he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is them the end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto them heirs of promise the immutability, or the, 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 the fact that God cannot change of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, watch this now, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon hope that is set before us. What he's saying, our hope has been put in God who cannot change, 
who made the promise to Abraham and kept the promise, and the same God who made the promise to Abraham and kept the promise to Abraham makes the promise to the people of faith now and keeps the promise to the people of faith now. We have hope in Him. Look at the next point. Look at verse 19. Watch this. Which hope we have as an anchor. Everybody say anchor. An anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enter into that within the, in the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made it high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now what's he talking about? He's saying we've placed our hope in the finished work of Jesus who's entered in behind the veil to the holy place. And the work he completed is enough. It's enough, brothers and sisters. So I do not believe Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6 is telling us that we can lose our salvation. Before I go any further, let me ask you just a few questions to get you thinking. To say that you can lose your salvation really means that you... Gain, you believe you gain, or at least you keep your salvation. If that's true, why did Jesus come and die for us as Savior? Why did He have to? If you can gain it, if you can earn it, then why did He come? Brothers and sisters, if there was anything I can do to earn my salvation. Do you think God the Father would have killed His Son? If I can earn my salvation by my self-righteous works, then God has made a colossal mistake in putting His Son on the cross. And He put His Son on the cross 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21 says, He, meaning God the Father, hath made Him, meaning God the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be called the righteousness of God in Him. So if I can earn it by my self-righteous works, or if I could keep it by my self-righteous works, then why did Jesus do what He did? Why did He have to? Let me ask you another question. If you can gain your salvation by works, how many good works do you have to perform? You ever thought of that? I remember when I was a little boy, eight, nine years old, sitting in Sunday school. And my Sunday school teacher was a great, great lady. And I, and I, I, I hesitate to even tell this story, but I'm going to go ahead and tell it because it, it makes my point, all right? But she was a great lady. I, I think that maybe she just misspoke. Um, I believe she loved Jesus with all her heart. I believe she loved them boys in her class with all her heart. I do. Maybe she misspoke. Or maybe she was trying her best to get a group of unruly eight-year-old boys to act right, of which I was a part of. When she made the statement, good little boys go to heaven and bad little boys go to hell. I don't know what it was, but she said it. When she said it, it stuck with me, and I thought about that. And that, that worked on me for a long time. Because 
I mean, I grew up in church all my life. I sure didn't want to go to hell. I sure wanted to go to heaven. How much good do I got to do? How bad can I be? I thought about that for a long time. And then I finally got my answer. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, he said, if you are going to obtain righteousness by your self-righteous works, God requires perfection. He actually says to the people there at the Sermon on the Mount, he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And everybody blew everybody's mind. It's like, well, who can be saved then? He got me. He got me. See, what I began to realize, I don't care how hard I try or how much good I try to do, I'm never going to attain perfection. And that's what God requires for salvation. So we got a big problem, ain't we? All right, here comes Jesus. He came and is born perfect. And he lived perfect, fulfilling the law completely. Which really means he fulfilled the righteous standard of God in human flesh. Then he went and died, not for his sin, but for my sin, because he had done no sin, but he died for my sin. Let me tell you why. So that he might fulfill the wrath of God against sin. Then he tasted death for me, but he rose again the third day so that I too could overcome death out of the grave. And then he said, all you got to do is place your faith in me and I'll give you the gift of salvation. So now it's no longer about my self-righteous works, but the grace of God. Isn't that what Ephesians 2, 8 says? For by grace through faith you are saved. Brother, put that on the screen for me. For by grace through faith and not of yourselves, it is what? Let me ask you something. Do you ever work to obtain a gift? Romans 4, you can go back and read that this week. That'd be a great quiet time for you. Romans 4 makes the point that if you try and work to obtain a gift, then it's no longer a gift. And that's right. How many of you have, as parents on Christmas morning give your kids gifts because they've been good little boys or good little girls all throughout the year. Anybody? I sure don't. If that was the criteria that was being used, I ain't never gonna give them nothing. I ain't gonna spend all my money for stuff they ain't never gonna play with. That ain't why I give them gifts. Let me tell you why I give them gifts. Not because they've earned it. Because if it's about them earning it, it's not a gift. I give them gifts. Let me tell you why. Because I love them. Isn't that what God said? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have what? There it is again. Are you getting what I'm saying? Are you getting where this is going? Folks, listen to me. I do not believe you can lose your salvation. And I do not believe that's what the writer is saying. Let's go on. Let's go on. The first, I think, major misconception of this passage is that you can lose your salvation. But some say 
that the writer is speaking of those who've never truly been born again. That's who he's really talking to. I don't think that's right either. Let me tell you why. Look at verses 4 and 5. Watch what he says. Hebrews 6, verse number 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Amen. You know what it means to be enlightened, don't you? That means you've passed from the darkness to the light. You've now been born again by the marvelous light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like it says in the book of 1 Timothy. Let's go on and watch what else he says. And I tasted the heavenly gift. There it is. You've received the gift by grace through faith. And we're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost lives in us and dwells us as believers at the time of conversion. Praise the Lord. We are now the temple of God. So according to what he tells us right here, verse 5, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, I think in these two verses he's describing blood-bought, born-again believers who have the Holy Spirit living within them. I don't think it, he's talking to Christians who've never been saved. What I think this passage is about is him giving a hypothetical case to prove the point that you cannot lose the gift, the free gift of salvation. And he's saying to them, if you've done all this, if you've tasted the good word of God and you've been enlightened, and, and, and you, you're a part of the, of, of the family of God, like he states in verses 4 and 5, and, and verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, if all of this has happened to you, and you were to fall away, there's no way that you could ever be brought back. Now, that blows a hole, a big hole. And the theological argument of those who believe you can lose your salvation, because most of those who believe you can lose your salvation also believe you can regain it. That's not what this is saying. He says, if you were eight, well, if, you, if it was possible for you to lose it, there's no hope for you to gain it. Why? Because Jesus only had to die once. And to say he had to die again would put him to an open shame. Are you seeing where he's going? He's saying that is a crazy argument to say that you can lose it and regain it because Jesus died once and for all for the sins of the world. Amen? Folks, he's not saying you can lose it. He's making the point. He's making the case that it is signed, sealed, delivered, and eternally secured in the finished work of Christ. Are you getting that? Now, if you have truly been born again, the progress that we are called to as believers will result in fruitfulness. Because I know what some people may be thinking. Well, brothers, you're just one of the people who thinks you can just go out and live however you want to live and you're still going to be saved. No, that ain't what I said. That ain't what I believe. You just believe you can do whatever you want to do and then, hey, you're once saved, always saved, so I'm just going to live like hell. Still go to heaven. That's what people think. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Word of God teaches. Jesus said, you'll know a tree by what? A good tree bears what? And an evil tree bears what? Bad fruit. Bad fruit. And that's what the writer says here. Look in verses 7 through 10. And we'll finish the close. Just hang with me just a minute. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth the herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receive blessing from God. But that which heareth beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and it's nigh unto cursing, those in, whose end is to be burned. 
But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. What he's saying to these people who he's already proved that you can't lose your salvation because Jesus died once and for all and that was enough. He's saying to them, I want better things for you. I don't want you to bear bad fruit. I want you to bear good fruit. I don't want you to bear briars and thistles. I want you to bear fruit that brings blessing unto people from the Lord. Let's go on. Watch what else. Verse number 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward His name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So what he's saying, this progress that you are called to will bear fruit as a child of God. It's going to happen. Verses 11 and 12 teaches us that this progress that we are called to, listen to me now, takes effort on our part. Watch this, verse 11. And we desire that every one of you do this up, do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who have, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. What are you saying there? Don't be slothful. Who can tell me what slothfulness is? Laziness. So look, don't get lazy. Be diligent. Hey, Peter said, be sober and be vigilant. Be watching. Be working. Don't be slothful. Get busy. Get faithful. Because if you're going to progress, it's going to take you doing your part. Like I said, this has nothing to do with your self, losing your salvation. You have nothing to do with gaining or keeping your salvation. But you have a lot to do with your growth. Um, Michelle, you said something to me years ago. I haven't forgot. I really like it. She said she believed you ought to work like it's all up to you and trust pray and pray and trust. like it's all up to God. I like that. And I think that's exactly what he's saying right here in Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. Be diligent. Don't get lazy. Work like it's all up to you. Pray and trust like it's all up to God. Any comments or questions? 